Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. I'm here today with uh, Hank Greeley. Hank is a professor of law at Stanford University, and his resume says, by rights, a professor of law, by courtesy, a professor of genetics, and by any fair estimation, a professor of bioethics as well. He is the director of a center for law and the biosciences, and is, I think, I think it's fair to say, the go-to person on LC issues in the biosciences for journalists, government agencies, academic task forces, pretty much everywhere and everything. Also, and I think this is something we should honor more than we do, he's an incredible mentor of the next generation. There are so many people now doing interesting work at the intersection of law, bioscience, and policy, and it's amazing how many of them will tell you they trained with Hank. Hank's done work looking at legal issues in disciplines as disparate as neuroscience and climate science, but those of us who work in genetics feel we can claim him as one of our own. A universally psi-curious person in theory, but I think he has a type, and I think we are it. Uh, evidence for that, his previous book was called The End of Sex, and it posited that stem cell technology could change the way humans chose to re practice reproduction, though a spoiler, not sex per se, <laughs> a few decades from now. An alluring topic, but one I'm going to steer clear of because Hank's new book out this month is also a sexy topic, human germline genetic engineering. At least that's my idea of a sexy topic. Um, honestly, I finished CRISPR people last week and I have more dog ears on the pages than I have minutes in the podcast. So what are we going to do? Um, Hank, I like this book very much because, well, I have many, three reasons noted here. I'm just going to start with one. Um, a visitor, I think, to other realms and other vocabularies, you demystify things without dumbing them down. It's uh, this clear, firm, you know, uh, I guess lawyers are by nature good storytellers, but it, let me say it doesn't always make it into the prose, mm. right? <laughs> so I appreciate that this is... Um, this is uh, highly technical and yet storytelling. Um, and I think people, other people will like it a lot as well. Well, thanks. I'm glad you like it. Um, and I, and I'm, I really do appreciate the comment about being a mentor of if anything I do has any significance, anything in my career has any significance 30 or 40 years from now, it's going to be the young people that I um, help push in particular directions. Dive in here on this subject of human germline engineering and um, where you sort of start, where everybody tends to start, it's, it's asylum are, right? So here's this big thorny issue. It's been a thorny issue. It's recognized from the very beginning, from the first time they put, you know, one bit of yeast genetics into another yeast, and people are like, wait a minute, this could go wrong in some big ways. And, um, but I think some of the uh, comparisons to this conference that took place in 1975 where they decided to put a hold on everything. And you describe that as both humble and hubristic, I think, right? Mm. <laughs> but I, I think it's so interesting to look back on that, not as a comparison, because it's not a very useful comparison, but how much the world has changed since Asylum are. I mean... So people are sort of saying, like, we could use that as a model, but what a tiny little homogenous community of Western people that could all sit around a table. Right, and, and basically that was the entire community of scientists whose labs were able to do the recombinant DNA. 
you want to try to get the entire community of scientists whose labs are able to use CRISPR right now. And there's there's not a sports stadium big enough to hold them. Uh, it's, we're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> yeah, hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, it was small. Uh, there were four lawyers who apparently had an outsized influence by scaring the hell out of a lot of people. Uh, but uh, it was a different world. But, you know, for me, so I first really began paying attention to the CRISPR side of it when I got this email in October of 2014 from Jennifer Doudna and Dana Carroll asking if I wanted to come to a meeting in Napa in January. And Napa in January, I said, sure. Um, and it was a gorgeous weekend. But there were 14 of us around the table. And at that table were Paul Berg and David Botstein who were two of the five organizers of the Asilomar Conference, who were talking about, in Asilomar we had said, no germline human editing. We're not going to do it. Um, and this was like two weeks short of the 40th anniversary of the Asilomar Conference. It was, it was eerie to be at the table with those guys uh, talking about this. So in some respect, I, I think – other people without that peculiar experience have seen parallels between this moment and Asilomar. But for me, it was particularly strong. Yeah. Wow. I, I, um, so yeah, at Asilomar, in, in, in case it's unfamiliar to anybody, there was a decision made, I, I think in the sense of, look, we need to draw a line. A line, if a line is drawn somewhere, we'll feel much more comfortable because we won't worry about where is this headed because we have a line. And the line was, we won't engineer egg sperm embryos. We won't engineer the genes of that are going to be passed down to the next generation. But it was a hypothetical line because nobody really thought we could do it. I, I remember explaining this once as best I could to someone at a party in New York. It's a very New York. The guy looked at me after a while and he said, so you mean it's like me saying, I don't want that $6 million apartment because really the third bedroom is kind of small. And I'm like, yes. That's exactly it. It's like it's very easy to not want what you can't have. Yeah, I'm not going to star in the NBA because I got better things to do. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. So Yeah, uh, and I, I worry, frankly, science has, you know, this is not the only time science has carefully forsworn something that they can't do. And then it gets closer to the time when you can do it. And science with a capital S begins to say, oh, well, wait a minute. Maybe we should think a little bit more about some of these things. Uh, that's that's not good, I think, in the long run for the relationship between science and the rest of the world. So that's sort of what I'm saying. It's harder and harder to talk about science, like science with a capital S. Yeah. Um, you know, it really used to be something you could talk about. It used to be a bunch of guys uh, that could all go sit around a table. It is interesting, though, and, you know, the book calls for science with a capital S to do some specific things and do more of them, including in particular, be more humble, like, right, that's going to happen. Uh, but um, there has been significant activity by science with a capital S in the aftermath of Hu Jongkui. And anybody out there who speaks Mandarin, please forgive my butchering of his name, but that's the best I can do. Um, the National Academies has been very active, along with the usually in conjunction with the Royal Society. And, you know, they're, they're not just guys around the table. Alta Charo is at every table. Um, <laughs> wonderfully so. Um, but um, it is 
the voice of big science with a capital S. The WHO has an international commission looking at this, another big science with a capital S. I don't think they are as dominant as they would have been 40 or 50 years ago, but I still think they, they play an important role. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say, because there's different directions I could go here, but, I, but number two thing, the number two thing I like about this book. Oh, that's right. You had three things. Yeah, I, I'm spacing them out. Okay. Um, is you don't make me choose between the philosophical stuff and the fun stuff. There's a lot of fun stuff in this story. And uh, the book has, has both, right? And at time, and you're clear. You're clear. You're like, this may not be necessary to that discussion, but it's an interesting tale. So let <laughs> us have it. And I, I really appreciated that, uh, even though it's a familiar. So we're, let's talk a little bit about, well, first of all, you talk about there's two real stories in the book that you tell that are incredibly engaging. And one is the, the CRISPR story itself um, um, and the whole cast of characters. And I, I'm not going to go into that too much, but I would like to say, because it's always something I want to talk about, that it's one of my favorite things about CRISPR is that when the ah, first aha moment came where they realized this is a system for bi- editing DNA the aha was, oh, my God, we can fix yogurt. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> or, or alternatively, oh, uh, so this is what that stuff's doing in those bacteria. <laughs> God, we've been, you know, we've been wondering what the hell it's doing there. And but Francisco Mojica figured they it out. have been wondering that long. It was just Francisco Mojica had been. Yeah, but one guy, it, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like right. a Fermat's theorem or something like hanging over the world right. forever, hundreds of years. It's like, we started doing sequencing. We found these weird things. It, from that point on, it was going to come out. It was a question of who got there first. It was the race. Right. But, but what I love about the story is that it is such a nice example of, of serendipity in science. I mean, Mojica is a microbiologist in Valencia in Spain. Um, he's not trying to win a Nobel Prize. He's not trying to set the world on fire. He's trying to understand this weird thing about microbes. And that's led to the, I think, most important tool, biological tool, since, I don't know, sequencing, PCR, and maybe stronger than, than either of those. And it, it was curiosity-driven basic science that turned into something really important. And you're right. Somebody was going to do it. Um, and in fact, the, the poor guy from Lithuania, whose name I can never pronounce, Shishkinish, something <laughs> close to that. I, I'm sorry. I'm, too, not, too I'm not trying. I refuse. Yeah. Yeah. He actually submitted his paper before Dada and Charpentier submitted theirs. Yes. Uh, but his got bounced back for uh, by the peer reviewers for revisions. Now, theirs was more complete than his, but somebody was going to do it. Um, it was one of those things that's in the air. Right, right, right. But, but, but only because these curiosity-driven folks or commercially-driven folks, in the case of the yogurt people, uh, had been looking at this stuff for a while. Yeah. Well, the, the yogurt people were on it, and I just – I, I know I, I'll love that forever. I, I, my two favorite things, and I, the other thing is that when I learned, it was like this year I learned when Jennifer Doudna got her Nobel Prize that Berkeley gives Nobel Prize winners their own parking space for forever. As a New yep. Yorker, that was like nothing more amusing to me than that. I was or or like awe inspiring. I'm like I would do a lot for a parking space forever. That's well, especially at Berkeley. I mean, getting parking at Berkeley is like getting parking in Manhattan. 
like total respect. My my father worked for Columbia Hospital, an institute of Columbia Hospital in, in New York for for many many years, and uh, parking spaces were so hard to get. They had uh, a few of them down on Riverside Drive, which if you know New York, is like this main artery. They had a few parking spaces reserved for senior staff. And and one of the people that worked for him, who was pretty senior but not senior enough, couldn't get one. And he finally snuck down there in the middle of the night and painted his own parking space on to – he painted another one on and his name on it. And it took them <laughs> like a year and a half before they found out. <laughs> well, one of my favorite data stories uh, – a bit of a digression. I talk about living people in this, and that actually kind of makes me nervous because these are people I know and I like, and I, for the most part, and I interacted with, and I worry that, you know, when I when I say that David Baltimore is a man not afraid to lead, will he view that as a good thing <laughs> or an insult? <laughs> Knowing David, I think he will not have any trouble with that uh, particular line. But Jennifer is uh, getting to know Jennifer somewhat. I've probably seen her 10, 12, 15 times in the last five years, uh, has been a real pleasure. She's such a nice, good, interesting, engaged person. I've yet to have any interaction with her that has has been less than, than great. Um, but at some point I realized, somebody else pointed out to me, I didn't just dawn on me, her name literally is, her last name, do you DNA. <laughs> I, I never occurred to me. Born, uh, it turns out that it, it occurred to a bunch of other people. When I ah. mentioned it to her, she sort of grimaced. Yeah, said, yeah I've, I've heard that before. Yeah, I imagine. So, so the other great story involved in this is the, which we've already referenced a little bit, is this um, disaster story out of China. Yeah. Um, and he... Let's call him JK. I know it's a little bit uh, maybe okay. impolite to be so familiar, but I know how to say JK. So that's, okay. I feel like it might be more impolite to bungle his name. Um, I, I suspect he's not going to be listening to the podcast, but you never know. Just just a matter of global respect. I'm not trying to. Okay. Um, so he's, he's a, I was thinking about this. So he's like an Icarus character. You know, he really has, it's like a theatrical quality to his story. You know, he, mm. he, he came from a very small town and sort of made it in a very big way, mm -hmm. getting here, and then came back as a star to China and uh, absolutely overreached. I think that's fair? Yes. Um, although... You know, Icarus is complicated. The actual Icarus parallel is complicated. Icarus's dad is the great inventor of Daedalus, and I think isn't he trying to escape from someplace, etc. Um, in a way, I think he's, and I hate to say this because it feeds into the side of the myth I don't like. In a way, he's kind of the mythic version of, well, he's he's one version of Victor Frankenstein. Um, not necessarily Mary Shelley's version of this obsessed student, but he is somebody who's just ambitious and pushing and pushing and pushing um, because he thinks he's going to be a hero. Uh, and it's so odd in some ways. He hadn't done anything with reproduction. 
he was basically a microfluidics guy. He was a biophysics sort of guy. His one-year postdoc was Steve Quake here at Stanford. Quake is a single does analysis of single cells, which you sort out with microfluidics and a bunch of stuff that you know, I can say the words, but I don't know what they mean. Um, and that was his. That was J.K.'s background, both both at in a Stanford postdoc and at Rice. And why and how he got into got got sucked into the idea of chasing CRISPR babies uh, is something that would be really interesting, and I'd love to ask him about it. But it is in interesting. Prison. And by the way, that is why I was kind of what I was trying to say at first. I think that's actually really helpful for the book because your expertise, though you have spent a, clearly a lot of your professional life in the biosciences, you're a lawyer. And so it's not it's totally comfortable for you to say, I know what the, to say these words, but I don't know what they mean. And I think it's incredibly helpful in the book because there's a lot of stuff that all of us, even if we're in the field, are a little less inclined to admit when we don't know what we mean. And so you explain it, you able to explain it quite clearly. So yeah. it's, it's helpful. I, even to, I've been around this a long time and I, I, I learned quite a bit reading, reading it. A little applause and, in there, but, and, 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 and I hope most of what you learned is true. <laughs> we're just, we're going to glide right over that. Uh, you, one point you were talking about all the ways in which this particular experiment on living, existing people failed you know, the test of traditional ethical guidelines. And one of them, I don't even think it's mentioned in there, is that he's the wrong person to do it. And that is specified in the Nuremberg guidelines. You're supposed to be the best person to do it. Um, And he clearly was not. I mean, it was a bad choice of experiment. It was not necessary. It it, it had bad informed consent. It had many problems, right? Damn it, Laura, now I'm going to have to go back and do a new edition and add that insight. (laughs) Curse you, Red Baron. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or Baroness. Thank you. Thank you. Um, no, uh, that, that's a, that's a good point And one that uh, you're absolutely right. And I hadn't thought about it. Yeah. Next edition. So what I think, so even though it was in the air, there was this sense, somebody sometime is going to try this when it happened, where it happened, when it happened, it came as a shock. I know you mentioned a handful of people for whom it did not come as a shock, but for most of us, it certainly did. Yeah, it was like Dolly. Uh, And actually, it was like Dolly even more deeply because Dolly was a huge shock, but it really shouldn't have been because uh, Wilmot had published a year before that he had cloned sheep, but he'd cloned them from embryonic cells. I think some embryonic cells in a fetal cell, he cloned two sheep. And it was sort of, ah, well, it's not from a living sheep. It's not from an adult sheep. It doesn't really count. And people completely forgot about that when the nature story came out, leaked first in the tabloid press and came out. And, and people were running around tearing their hair out about armies of cloned warrior slaves. Well, the other, <laughs> the other way in which it was like Dolly a little bit is that maybe one of the reasons why people weren't taking it seriously is it wasn't coming from the Broad and it wasn't coming from Stanford or Berkeley. It was coming from a place that most of us hadn't heard of. Um, and that made people more surprised. They were paying yeah. less attention and also a little more nervous. Like, wait yeah. a minute, that's much more of an issue here where you mix in, I don't know, xenophobia. I, I, 
I don't know whether yeah. to go with the, I don't know whether to go with the, this is terrible because it's xenophobic, which I felt very much at the time and throughout that there was this undercurrent of. I just say racism. I, I think there is a clear undercurrent of anti-Chinese, anti-Asian racism in some of this. On the other hand, it's not like I think China is the workers paradise and the, you know, the, it's not a great government. It's not a great place. And there are reasons for us to be concerned about it. But, but I'm a Californian, and our history in the 19th century, with respect, and 20 up through World War II, and Asians, Asian Americans, is awful. Awful. And there is that, and part of it was well that they don't have morality; they, they, they'll never understand our morality. And so, one of the continuing themes underlying a lot of the bioethics discussion is well, the Chinese just have different ethics and different morals, and. You know, at the margins in scientific ethics, that's true. But for the most part, they they follow, they say they follow, and I think they follow the same kind of rules and same kind of standards that everybody else does. Except for her, who clearly violated you know, Chinese standards as well as everybody else's. Well, he misread the room. Yeah. Um, there's no question. I, I, I think it's interesting, and I, I think... I don't know if you stayed an opinion here, but uh, there was a distinct sequence of events. Antonio Regalado broke this story. Mm-hmm. That was fun. That was fun. Yep. That was whole, like, you know, I'm sorry, science journalism doesn't get that many, like, cloak and dagger sort of stories. I mean, he, he wants to be Woodward and Bernstein combined. <laughs> he, he, really, I, I, he really wants to be an investigative journalist. Um, part of him wants to be an investigative journalist, and, and boy, he pulled it off in this one. He sure did. He sure did. Um, so he broke the story. It was really, there was a there was an outpouring. Um, J.K. himself seemed very surprised that he that people weren't excited. I think um, Kieran Musunuru, you've quoted a bunch of times, he's been on this program a bunch of times, and he's said often, and I think everyone kind of agrees with you, that with him, that... Uh, he was planning to do the Steve Jobs tile thing at, at the end of his talk. And one more thing, here are babies. Um, I wonder if there hadn't been such a unified within the science community and internationally negative reaction. I wonder if there, there seemed to be a hesitation in the reaction among the Chinese authorities. And I'm not positive like, that they were waiting to see how they might respond. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, one of the frustrating things about frustrating and scary things about writing this book was how little information we have about what's going on in China. And, you know, we know that there's a third baby, but we only know that from one sentence in a Chinese press release. And we don't know male, female, healthy, unhealthy, or even what its embryo was edited for. He was not just interested in CCR5, the HIV-related gene, which he edited in the two twins we know about, but he was also investigating, playing around with a gene called PCSK9, which is involved in heart disease. So um, we just don't know enough about what happened. And the Chinese government makes it unlikely that we will. But while waiting for this book to come out, you know, there could have been revelations coming out that would make half of what I said wrong because we have so little evidentiary basis on for so many things that, that we're interested in. 
you you mentioned this in the beginning of the book that you you know that there's going to be a year between when you close the book and when it actually gets published and you don't know what's going to happen in that year and that turned out to be sort of a funny thing to say because it's like yeah you really don't Hank you really don't know what's going to happen in that year and it's not yeah, what so you think <laughs> although it was biology from China it was you don't know what's coming out of China in the next year that's exactly or maybe right. from China yeah oh please yes um, so and in this case it actually sort of shut down like there was kind of sort of a year without news other than that. Yeah, it's, it's, well, yes. I mean, politics. Yes. But, but who, right. It was having this book come out. It was like, anybody still remember those two babies that we were all so concerned about? Back <laughs> oh, remember how we used to live back then? <laughs> remember back in the old days, grandma, when we used to live with other people? We didn't um, have masks all the time. By the way, you're not wearing a mask right now, Laura. I'm, I'm shocked. Well, I'm endangering my dog, I suppose, but. <laughs> <laughs> Zoom transmit. Zoom is not a uh, major transmitting force. Yes, correct. Um, thank goodness. <laughs> that would really yeah. have been the end of society. Yeah. Um, yes. So coming out of this, you describe a, n a number of different, you've, you've talked about National Institute of Health and, Nuffield, uh, what did they call the, the, the document? There. Council, Nuffield Council. Um, you don't mention the ASHAG paper on human germline engineering, which, okay, fine. Okay, fine. That's the one I worked on. But I, I, I was going to. You were. No, you, you were know, not. I saw your name on it. And I, no. Yeah. Um, it may have actually come out after. I'm going to hope it no, came just out don't, after I don't, went to bed don't, on this. Just don't go there. Just don't go there. Okay. So, um, but the thing is, the point is, that it really was unnecessary for you to mention every document because there's an enormous consensus between them. The The differences are, are quite shades of gray, right? Little tiny things. Um, in that yes. all of them, all of them open a, a, a pathway to human germline genetic engineering someday, but all of them have a bunch of conditions in place that we might never meet. Um, in particular, you go through the first set of conditions that everybody says, of course, is it has to be safe. And uh, you actually lay out a really interesting case that it would be almost impossible here to prove, to get to the point where you proved safety. Yeah. Um, and um, the other one, which I think is interesting, they all talk about different language, but they all talk about societal engagement and, and societal consensus. Um, yeah, I, I guess I wouldn't say they they point to a they hold open, but they hold open the possibility. Right? But I think it's really important, as you said, these these conditions may never be met. The safety conditions and the other conditions, and one of the things that's worried me a little bit about some of the statements from big science, science with a capital S, had, sometimes it sounded like well, we'll do all this work and then we scientists will figure out whether it should be done or not. And science really, I think, needs to acknowledge much more openly and frequently that it, it is a creature of its society. Society is the one that will decide whether it will be done or not. I think science has a crucial role in advising and saying whether how safe it is and how beneficial it would or wouldn't be. 
But um, science can't exist apart from the society in which it's embedded any more than, you know, fish can exist outside the water. Uh, and particularly given the, the, the mad scientist myths out there and all the fiction in all the different formats with, with rogue scientists doing bad things, who was is a rogue scientist, I think. And it's really important for science, as, as it has largely, but not quite as much as I would like, uh, done to say, to, to close ranks and say, no, that's a rogue. Yes, we, we will listen. We listen to our societies. We do not do things that the people don't want us to. But so I, I, I wrote one of those sections and we put in this thing about consensus and engagement. And we had this discussion about what it would look like. Yeah. And none of us knew. Like, it's vague. And I, I tell my students, I'm going to be honest with you. It's not vague by accident. You look at it. You're like, you're not being very specific. I'm like that. It was on purpose because we yeah. had no idea what that looked like. So. A- ambiguity is always the enemy, except when it's your friend. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly um, right. And, but I think there are some... There's some models. Um, the one that I like best, but it's not perfect, is what the Brits did with respect to mitochondrial transfer. Yeah. Where the Nuffield Council, a, a, a non-governmental ethics group, spent a lot of time and money. I think I think a fair amount of it was government money that they spent, but they weren't the government themselves, doing focus groups, doing deliberative democracy, doing surveys, doing panels. Ultimately, it went to Parliament. Parliament had what they call a free vote, where you, the party didn't tell you which way to vote um, and decided to pass it. But what they passed even then wasn't, this is okay. It was H, the HFEA, the Human Fertility and Embryology Authority, has the power to license this to particular labs in particular circumstances. So I thought that now the U.S. and the U.K. are very different countries. They have but, an HFEA, which has actual yep. teeth associated with it. It's not an advisory thing. Yep. So they have a body in place that can um, regulate this. And and I think it's I, I'm a big fan of the HFEA, even though I think in some circumstances it's it's more it sometimes is more conservative than I think it should be. But I like the its ability to get down into the weeds in terms of regulation. Whereas with the FDA, once the FDA approves something for one purpose, any doctor under the off-label use doctrine is able to use it for anything else. But I don't know whether given American society, given the American medical system, the power of, of doctors in medicine and clinics, I don't know whether we could politically get an HFEA in the United States. So um, we need to make question. the best of what we can. I have this question I was going to ask you about that, which is that we very often regulate via money. It's not real regulation. We say, well, it could happen, but we can't use any government money on it. Or yeah. you can't do it in a lab where government money pays to turn on the lights. And, and I, 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 just, I, I wonder if you could speak to that. Do you think that's uh, effective, problematic? How do you think it's worked out? Yes, <laughs> I think it's effective and problematic, and it somehow worked out. Um, so 
stem cells, great example. When the Bush, uh, the second Bush decided no federal funding for research using human embryonic stem cell lines, except the lines that were made before the moment he made that statement in a press conference, uh, California, my friends doing stem cell research in California got really sort of freaked out. And some of them actually put tape down the middle of their labs and had equipment bought with federal money on one side and non-federal money on the other side. It led to California funding, uh, the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Um, it did a lot of things and it, it both cut down substantially federal funding as a reaction, it prompted some state funding, but it also probably prompted some other people to decide this is too iffy, I don't want to go into it, and prompted some grad students and postdocs probably to say, yeah, this may not be a field I want to go into. So I think that the direct results aren't huge in many cases because there are other sources of funding, but there are other carryover results from funding bans. I, I think there's may ultimately grad be more students powerful. that choose not to come to the United States yeah. because you start but, working on something and then four years later you could lose your funding because the politics change. Right. But you know, there's, there's another funny aspect of the funding thing in which the U S doesn't have the leverage. And you know, if you're in a country that doesn't rely on a, a national research institute like NIH to provide most of the research funding, then that institute's powers are limited. In much of the world, the main power regulating assisted reproduction is government health plans. Because right. the health plan will pay for three attempts or five attempts or for women under 40 but not over 40 or this or that or the other thing. Right. In the U.S., we don't pay for any of it. So the federal government... Well, for, for many things, the federal government has less of a hook because we have less uh, government provision of health care. So, yeah, fo follow the money is always a good idea, but it leads in different directions and in different contexts. Um, yes, yes, it has. It, ha it makes a, for a much more complicated story. I, I want to go back to this um, sort of consensus among the bioethics, the scientists, the people that have sat down and looked at the issue. Yeah. I, I feel like, uh, and it's something, it's same thing I would say, it's something I agree with, like it's, it's inarguable, but sometimes I feel like, okay, but all of that is starting from the position of should we do it or should we not do it as though that was the question. And if you started with the question of this is going to happen in some places, should we participate or not participate? Do you feel like that's a different question? It's a different question. Um, I think it still implicates the first question uh, in that if you don't think it's a bad thing, then you don't have any real concern about being involved in other people's efforts to do it, right? Right. If you think this is great, then there's no real problem with helping other places or other but if you think it's nuclear weapons, you know, you think it's going to, yeah. it's bad, but it's going to happen somewhere. Do you have to be in the game? Is it something you have to be in the game? Ah, so be in the game like doing it yourself. Perhaps this is a good a, time to bring out to my third them. thing I like about this book, which is that you do not shirk from taking a stand on things. Um, so I have a lot of, you have a lot of friends here and there's a lot of things where you're like nuance on the issue. I see this and that. At the end of the day, you take a stand on almost everything that you discuss. So I'm asking you to take a stand on something that's tough. Like, 
if it's going to happen somewhere, do we have to do it? No. See, it, it takes a stand. But, you know, although, and I try, I, I teach this, try to teach it to my law students, the first two words in any answer to any good question should always be, it depends. <laughs> yeah. Because there may be circumstances where it is actually better if we have a hand in it for us to control its application, but that won't be universal. And there's no, there's no necessary need for us to play at it in order to be able to say something about it, uh, to, to have some clout with respect to it. Um, Germany, as far as we know, has not played in nuclear weapons. Uh, and yet a German position with respect to nuclear weapons has some weight, maybe not as much weight as the U.S., Russia, China, France, the U.K., and then the other countries with smaller arsenals, but it has some. Uh, I, I actually wonder, though, how much this is going to happen. For one thing, we don't have a clue how healthy or unhealthy Lulu and Nana are, let alone the third baby, which we know nothing at all about. Um, Hood, JK, did not make successfully the edit he wanted to make. Now, he does seem to have, with one of the twins, given her two copies of a gene that shouldn't successfully make the protein. So it's knocked it out in some ways, although it's not the way that we see in human populations. The other twin only got one knocked out copy and so basically has effectively close to zero. The potential benefit from this is tiny anyway, and hers is tiny divided by 100. And I think the one who had both copies successfully knocked out wasn't in all cells. Right. She's a mosaic. They right. showed, this so, is like if you had designed an experiment to show all the perils uh, of, of gene editing, you couldn't really have done a better job. It's actually one of the reasons I think he actually did it. I mean, we don't, there's, there's no outside data that says he did this, right? Even the Chinese government, as far as we know, hasn't, they haven't talked about having sequenced these kids or having you know, looked at the, the kids' genes. Everything we know about the experiment comes from him and his people he's confided in or people he's worked with. But I think one reason to believe it actually happened is because if you were going to make it up, you'd make it look more successful. <laughs> you'd just throw in one luck off target effect just so it didn't look too perfect. Yeah. But, yeah. but boy, there's, this one is not very close to looking too perfect. No. <laughs> this, one, this is just a terrible result. And, and we can only hope that it's not a terrible result for the kids involved. Yeah. 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 So, well. so anyway, but where, where I was going with all that is I'm not convinced that this is going to sweep the world, at least not for a while. Um, I've got this odd tendency to take a position in the middle where I get shot at from both ends. So I don't think human, I don't think the human genome the human genome germline is the Ark of the Covenant, the essence of our species, this sacred object that cannot be modified. I don't even think it really exists for the most part. There are 7.5 billion human ge germline genomes, and they change every generation. And human 
humans by changing the environment we live in change that genome by changing the incidence of different alleles the percentage of people who carry different alleles changes with the environment which we humans change through things like agriculture so i don't think it's a a, the, the big symbolic stuff doesn't appeal to me on the other hand at least with humans i don't think it's going to be very useful at least not unless even assuming that we can do it safely and effectively which are two big assumptions right now. There's not that much we can use, we would know how to use it for that we can't accomplish already through things like pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and increasingly, knock on wood, somatic cell gene therapy. So if we ever learn how to do enhancement, which undoubtedly will be, if possible at all, multigenic and complicated, then I think a lot of these issues become a big deal, become a much bigger deal, because you'd have to do editing rather than selection for that. If you're trying to get the right version of 10 different genes, you can't just do it through selection. You well, even, even more than that, Hank, even, I mean, because I think this is so, so spot on. And I think a lot of the discussion that goes on around this is actually disingenuous uh, because people know in the field. Mm. that this isn't the way to fix genetic diseases, that we already have an easier mode to get at that. Um, you know, you're both, both require IVF and then to, to, to just choose a healthy embryo rather than to alter an embryo is so much easier. And there's a very rare <coughs> cases where you can't do that. Right. And it would be so much easier to get better at the embryo making process. So we would be less likely to have that be the case than to fix the embryo so much easier. So it's, it's disingenuous. What isn't covered by that is to introduce DNA that isn't in either the mother or the father. Right. And it's, so it's that sort of enhancement process that is enabled by this technology not the prevention of illness per se. And I agree with you. That's right. We don't know that we can do it. But the, 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 you wouldn't know that when you read about it in, in the general population, you know, literature in the, in the presses. You wouldn't know, you would think this is about, do we use this to fix diseases or not? And that worries me a little bit in, the, in some of the, the science, um, capitalist science commissions talking about this. And what a pathway to it would look like. They're talking about the pathway to it for disease purposes, which almost no one will need to take. If, if you've got a couple, two people with cystic fibrosis who want to have a kid together and would rather that their kid didn't have cystic fibrosis, they would need this in order to have a kid who is genetically 99.999999, et cetera, percent theirs. There, but, there are going to be couples like that, but, but there are but, but, be very but, many of them. But, heck, like, two people with cystic fibrosis right now, they're not even supposed to be in the same room. I, like, I know. They don't and, have and, to. Like it, they're, they're, yes, these yes, things but, can happen. You can point out examples where these things can and will happen. But, but they are but the vanishingly rare thing. Right. It's going to be hundreds or thousands of couples around the world. It's not going to be hundreds of thousands of couples right. in the U.S. It's um, actually, so one of the really interesting things, you brought up the mitochondrial replacement therapy. So, yeah. And the whole story uh, with Britain, where we still haven't seen a baby born under this responsible procedure, where it's yeah. licensed 
uh, for specific families with specific needs, right? But we have seen a baby born with mitochondrial replacement therapy. Uh, I said it's more of a parable than an actual story uh, in Mexico to Jordanian parents by a New York doctor. Unbelievable, right? A New York doctor born in China. A New York doctor born in China who then turned around and said, I'm not interested in mitochondrial disease. I'm testing this out as a way to get babies for older women who want to put their own DNA into donor eggs so that they can have babies when they're, when they're older, because that's the real population. That's the sort of thing I'm saying. Like it's, it's about where the real audience lies. And and he had, and the same doctor who had discussions with JK about doing (laughs) JK's genome editing in his clinics. Um, You cannot make it up. You You cannot make it up. That's right. I've had Um, a slide for years saying this isn't a story. It's a parable. Like, this is the story of money and how this stuff works. Yeah, and I do, you know, I worry about that. I worry that people are going to use it before it's uh, been proven safe. They're going to go to clinics in various places that don't enforce things. We see all these stem cell clinics doing bogus stuff. The only thing that's real is the money that's moving from desperate people to clinic operators. Somebody's going to try that here. I worry about that a lot with the mitochondrial DNA, the it's not just Zhang in Mexico with the Jordanian parents, but this Zhang and some Greek doctors are doing it in Ukraine as well. Mm-hmm. And often for fertility purposes for which there is almost no evidence that it's actually working, but those are the desperate people who are willing to pay for it. So uh, I worry about the commercial sliding into quackery interests making a case for this, creating a demand for this that really shouldn't exist because it's just not good for it or necessary for it. It's certainly not the consensus we thought we had, right? So that's the thing. It it does get out of hand very, very quickly if you think you have it in hand, if you think, okay. It, it, it could. It can. It can, yeah. Eternal vigilance. <laughs> Which we're not very good at. Oh, eternal vigilance seems like a note on which to end, right? Like that. What are, where are we going to go from there? Where? Well, I would argue you know, with it. We we could have an eternal conversation. I, <laughs> I think that uh, you and I could talk for a lot longer. I but think, uh, I think that's true. But I would, nobody I would be to us. no, no. People, will, I, I would, my, I would be answering to my producers pretty soon in this conversation. I'll be answering my my producers. Honestly, I'll probably not stop talking to Hank Greeley after I sign off on this conversation. So, goodbye to those of you who are still listening to us. I had a great time, so I hope that you had a great time out there. And Hank, I hope that you had a great time, and we'll come I, back and talk to me again. I had a great time and I will come back and talk to you on the podcast or otherwise. Um, and maybe someday, uh, when we're both able to and willing to get on airplanes, maybe we'll actually see each other in person. God, that just sounds so awesome. Wow. What a thought. <laughs> what a thought. Okay, everybody. It's been a pleasure. Uh, go to the website, beaglelanded.com. Subscribe, follow me on Twitter, all that good stuff. Thank you. Stay safe.